0: This episode contains possible triggers for sensitive listeners, including suicide and scenes of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Myrtle Ward knew the end was coming for her. The year was 1934, El Sereno, a town east of downtown Los Angeles. Myrtle was a young woman, 22, beautiful dark wavy hair, sleepy eyes, and she was jobless, recently let go from a downtown cafeteria. Her husband was a wannabe musician, toting around an accordion he wasn't any master at playing and not getting invited back to the venues where he'd gig every once in a while, never enough to keep their heads comfortably above water. The United States was in the darkest hour of the Great Depression. The world was on the cusp of a second world war. The pressure was building. Myrtle was convinced forces of evil were stacking up against her. And it wouldn't just claim her. No, it would toy with her. She could feel it. Scratching at the inside of her skull like a trapped cockroach scuttling around behind her eyes, giving her headaches. Making her hands shake and her nightmares vivid. So terribly Vivid. Her guts told her she needed to go, to leave, to escape soon, but her brain told her there was nowhere to go. She was trapped, and it wouldn't just be her that would suffer. More terribly, it would be her infant daughter who would suffer as well. Myrtle approached her daughter, lying on a hand-me-down blanket. Jean, just three years old. Jean looked up at her mother and reached out for her. She... Wanted to be held. It's okay, babe. No. Myrtle couldn't let anything happen to her. Never to her gene. The dark, unknowable end slithering closer and closer. Myrtle would do whatever it took to keep themselves from that horrible fate. No matter the cost. I'm Dimitri Carano, and this is Solid Gold. The Insane Stories of California. She knew evil was very real. Growing up hearing the word of God preached to her from the pulpit instilled in her that there was a force of good in the universe, but that just as there are two sides to every coin, there was also a darkness. It was all around us, and we had to fight it every day. Keep it at bay. But Myrtle was a levee one wave away from breaking, and the storm was coming in over the horizon. And where was her husband through all this? Where was he, the one who was supposed to be there to help? To do whatever it took? It looked like what he was doing was chasing bar tips and free beers instead of a stable job to help support his wife and infant daughter. That's what it sure as hell looked like. It looked like he wasn't much worried about Myrtle losing her job, about the pressures of her mother and her father, pressures of God and what he wanted for her life, for little Jean's life. No, Clarence didn't care at all. And there was no way out of all this. After all, what could a girl like Myrtle really do? Jean burbled and squealed in Myrtle's arms. The baby was so perfect, so innocent and beautiful that Myrtle could cry, and she did as she stepped out the front door. She kept crying all the way to the family car, kept crying as she put Jean in the back seat, cried the whole drive to nearby Pasadena. By the time Myrtle had parked, she was all out of tears. She was calm now, at peace. She took Jean and walked from the car onto the towering Colorado Street Bridge. December 13th, 1913. The people of Pasadena are abuzz with excitement. Residents from all over the city have come to this historic event. The grand opening and christening of the completed Colorado Street Bridge. This thing is huge. I mean, it truly is a sight to see. Built by an architectural company that specialized in bridges, Waddell and Harrington, the bridge spans nearly 1,500 feet across, higher at one end actually by 30 feet, and 150 feet tall at its highest point above the Arroyo Seco streambed. Even before it was completed, the bridge sparked excitement in the community of Pasadena, taking 11 months to build 11,000 cubic yards of concrete, oh my god, that's a lot of concrete, it was designed in the Beaux Arts architectural design. Beau Arts is, for lack of a better term, a bit gaudy. If you Google it, that's B-E-A-U-X Arts, you'll see buildings that tell you in a wry, hoity-toity manner and with a hint of scotch on its breath that they're financially comfortable. These are fancy buildings. Simplistic color palettes, usually the natural color of concrete, along with one or two other bright flourishes to add some charisma. Patinaed copper, polished brass, black and gold marble slabs, buffed iron, you get the idea. You'll see lots of lions, images of angels with arms lifted above their heads, carrying uh, the the roof or the ceiling, or just standing there with their arms up because it looks pretty. Ornate pillars, intricate brickwork, leafing patterns that twist on stone vines, mosaics, festoons, It comes from French classicism, the 1600s to the 1700s, the face of the Met in New York, the Low Memorial Library at Columbia U, the Museum of Natural History Paris, Beaux Arts architecture, stunning structures, all of them. You could lose a day just staring at them. And now Pasadena had their own a bridge to connect cities, to showcase to the world that this wasn't just a city, it was a destination. When you see that bridge, especially at night with its globe lamps burning a soft, warm glow that seems almost train-like, you know you've arrived. Wherever it is you're from or wherever you're going, you're here now. The celebratory parade has begun and cars adorned with flowers and banners start their way across the bridge for the very first time. Children wave flags, men and women cheer, everyone claps. It's brisk out. Christmas is just around the corner, and everyone in attendance is filled with pride. This architectural marvel was the crown jewel of their city. As the parade of honking cars puttered across the highest point of the bridge, drivers looked out to the north and could see the Rose Bowl. Surrounded by lush green hills, there was magic in the air that place that night that bridge it felt like a miraculous thing myrtle sat slumped on a granite bench baby jean in her arms the child half asleep and half awake just coming out of a nap on that morning the morning of may 1st 1937 Passersby would say they saw a young, pretty woman and her very young, very pretty child sitting peacefully, minding their own business. Myrtle looked down into Jane's perfect eyes. Maybe she sang a quiet song to her daughter. Maybe she laid wet, burbling raspberries into her soft cheeks and made the baby laugh. Maybe she shook the child's arm and waved to those passersby. Whatever happened, it's here that the story takes a turn. Myrtle stood up, stepped onto the granite bench, looked out across the lush greenery 150 feet below her, the summer sun kissing her face. And she flung baby Jean over the side of the bridge. And then she threw herself. onlookers screamed but it was too late the two were gone disappeared over the side the passers-by now witnesses ran for the end of the bridge and climbed all the way down to the dried up stream bed which was then mostly stones they came onto a scene they would never forget Myrtle lay in a crumpled heap, a hair's breadth from the threshold of death. Three-year-old Jean was just several feet away, crying out for her mother, alive. And not only that, she seemed to be totally unharmed. Myrtle died in a hospital a few short hours later. its history, the Colorado Street Bridge has a tangled and dark reputation. During its 11-month build, a construction worker fell to his death, landing in a pit of cement. After it was completed, the striking landmark drew dozens of the desperate and the overwhelmed to its ledge, the Arroyo Seco calling their names, beckoning them and echoing manipulative cadences from over a hundred feet below. This city of roses, as it's known, has its fair share of thorns. The bridge quickly earned itself a second name, a name it is still called to this day, Suicide Bridge. The city has obviously done whatever it can to not only bury this unofficial title, but to deter would be jumpers. It wasn't too long until they put up a high railing along the bridge. This railing would be condemned by locals, saying it was unsightly and took away from its historical value. But even this railing didn't stop the most desperate of people, and the bridge served as the afterlife's doorway several more times. The city was at a loss. Hearts were breaking all across Pasadena. Confusion and tragedy and sadness and death all now seemed to be as much a part of the stunning structure's DNA as beauty and progress and opulence. A high fence was added to the bridge, and again, locals complained. But at least the number of suicides went down. To this day... More than a hundred people have leapt from the bridge to their deaths. Over half of those people did so during the Great Depression. Baby Jean, the infant daughter of Myrtle Ward, is the bridge's only known survivor. Whether by divine intervention or cosmic fluke, Baby Jean's fall was slowed by a nearby tree, leafy branches carrying her all the way down to a soft bed of shrubs on the dried stream bed. The two witnesses from the bridge rescued the bawling Jean and were eventually able to call help for her mother. But it was too late for Myrtle. In an interview with Steve Lauria for the Los Angeles Times in 1992, Jean herself said, quote, God sent his angels to save me. At the time of the interview, Jean was 59 years old. She goes on to say, The world was pretty bad at the time. My mother lost all hope. She didn't want to leave me. It wasn't rational, but she did it out of love. That's the way I see it. Jean stayed in El Sereno married a postman, had children of her own. She says there were no scars, physical or psychological, left behind from the horrible incident all those years ago. Seemingly a lifetime ago. Gene's father sat, staring out the window, accordion on his lap. After the incident, he always seemed on the verge of tears, always This close to breaking down, screaming, crushing his instrument underfoot. Always this close to just walking away. He looked at his daughter and played her a song instead. He played for hours, letting the music wash over him and drown out the thoughts too painful to contemplate for too long. Eventually he remarried and even found steady enough work. If there's anything the story of Jean and Myrtle can teach us, it's that your lens of the world is one you can choose. Jean lived a fulfilling, happy life. One that seems extraordinary when placed into context. When, really, unless you know of her story, her life would sound completely ordinary. Jean was able to pull back to view her mother, the woman who very nearly killed her, in a sympathetic light. She was able to see the confusion, the desperation, and she was able to love her. Myrtle didn't have to die the way she did. Nobody has to. If only she would have been able to glimpse the future, to see the life Jean would go on to lead, to see that the world did in fact heal, that life kept going, the world kept turning, that even though it got bleak and dark, The smoke eventually cleared. The dawn broke when night seemed at its blackest and coldest. Maybe she would have stood up on that bench, held Jean toward the horizon, and simply pointed to the beautiful expanse of green instead of doing what she did. Maybe she would have gestured to the Rose Bowl, shown her daughter the Arroyo Seco, maybe sang her a song. Maybe she would have gone back home and asked her husband to play his accordion, even if he didn't play it that well, so that she could dance with little Jean on the bed and laugh. Some people will tell you that the Colorado Street Bridge is haunted, and maybe it is. They might tell you, if they already know this story, that if you look close enough and keep your ears open, you can still hear Myrtle crying out, looking for her daughter along the stream bed. You might even see her ghost leap from the top. But I don't think that's it at all. I think what they're seeing are the angels, the same ones that carried Jean. Along with the tall fences, there are signs posted at each end of the bridge. They stand as a reminder and as a testament. There is hope, they say. There is hope. This podcast was written and narrated by me, Dimitri Carano and produced by myself and Brody Worrell. If you learned anything, if you had a little bit of fun, or if this story touched you in some way, subscribe to the show and leave us a good review. And go tell your friends about it. It helps get the show discovered and it helps keep us making more. Our next story will be out next week. So again, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. And if you or somebody you know is hurting, it's okay to ask for help. And you can call 800-273-8255 to talk to somebody. That's 1-800-273-TALK to talk to somebody. You can also visit suicideisdifferent.org and suicideispreventable.org if you're concerned about a friend or a loved one. This has been Solid Gold, the insane stories of California, a Voice in My Head production. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time.